0: Welcome to the SCBWI podcast, Conversations, a series of long-form interviews where we talk to some of the most influential and interesting people working in children's books. My name is Theo Baker, and on today's show, I talk to Cynthia Lydex-Smith, the New York Times bestselling author of everything from picture books, like her debut Jingle Dancer, to YA Gothic romance, like the Tantalize series, and everything in between. She's also the writer curator at the Heart Drum imprint of HarperCollins, which centers Native and First Nation stories. Cynthia has done it all, and we talked about how her study of the law and language led to her true purpose, and also Gothic fantasy and vampires, middle grade storytelling, Native and First Nation voices, and reimagining folk tales and myths from overlooked perspectives. So let's get to it. Please enjoy. Anyway, so Cynthia, um. Could you just uh, tell me a little bit about where you come from? And you can answer that however you'd like.
1: Sure. I was born and mostly raised in the greater Kansas City area. And my family is largely mid to southwestern. So I am an enrolled citizen of the Muscogee Nation which is located within the borders of the state of Oklahoma. It's an indigenous nation. And my mother and her family is from there. They were uh, moved to Kansas City when my grandfather was transferred to Richard Gebauer Air Force Base. So early on, there's a lot of back and forth. I'm currently in um, Austin, Texas. I dearly love and my life has been, you know, fairly up and down the central time zone. I went to college in uh, Lawrence, the University of Kansas Law School at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, which is technically Eastern time zone, but just barely. I often joke that I move up and down, but not back and forth.
0: So uh, what kind of kid were you? Were you into books as a child?
1: I was a big reader. I was an only child. My family didn't have what you might call a lush budget for things like books and uh, entertainment. So my mom was very devoted to taking me on Saturday mornings when I was little to the local public library. And I would come out with stacks of books. And then, of course, once I started school, I had the school library, too. I Even when I was in, I think it was the summer between... A second and third grade won the summer reading contest for the Mid-Continent Public Library. And I was very excited. I got my picture in the paper and I got to meet the mayor and I got books as a prize. So it was basically a win-win. And, you know, from that moment on and even before then, um, libraries were kind of my sanctuary, my safe place, but also a gateway to adventure.
0: Were you involved in journalism at, at any point?
1: I was looking to get a graduate degree. I finished college and I thought if I took a pause, I might not go back to school. And I wanted to have a continued education. And so essentially, I looked at my strengths. I can read, I can write and I can talk. Um, I'm not a good driver. I've barely cook i started two kitchen fires although i've gotten better in pandemic times uh there you know there are certain things that i felt i could pursue and so i went into law school the topics were extremely interesting to me i went to a law school that had more of an academic bent than a practical bent i wasn't necessarily looking to practice when i came out on the other side I thought that eventually I might become a First Amendment professor at a law school or a media law professor at a journalism school because I had a, you know, the journalism degree going in and really enjoyed that conversation as well. So I took classes like um, Roman law. If someone stones your cow, you can stone their cow. Um, I took employment discrimination law. Um, your boss is bad. I took feminism in the law, men are evil. I mean, it all sort of boiled down to really juicy conversations with kids who like to talk and debate and professors who were huge personalities. And it was a lot like being in a movie for a few years, but I didn't really see myself as someone who would pursue law as a practice. I saw myself as someone who would continue to be in these sort of lofty Um, conversations and debates about fascinating issues.
0: So, okay, the JD, a law degree, was that a detour or was that part of the story?
1: I was very involved in journalism. I have a degree in news editorial and public relations from the University of Kansas. And most of the jobs that I held going in through my education, I did a lot of internships, clerkships, I did a semester off program where I worked um, for small town newspapers, you know, like the Blue Springs Examiner in Missouri. But also I worked one summer for the Dallas Morning News. I covered high fashion, which is hilarious, and high profile, which is basically Dallas's version of the rich and famous. You know, I did countless stories at city and county commission meetings, uh, and I also had a lot of PR jobs. I worked one summer for Hallmark Cards Corporate Headquarters in Kansas City, uh, specifically for uh, the shoebox greeting um, was one of our big in-house clients. I worked on the National Jigsaw Puzzle Championship. I did a lot of work on um, the annual Christmas campaign, Keepsake Ornaments campaign, And then I also worked a year during school, part-time, at the Muscular Dystrophy Association, which was based in Topeka and just drove out every day from Lawrence. I worked one semester for Phillips Petroleum Company, doing mostly in-house publications, uh, but also some media response work and some work, um, you know, early on with events and speech writing. So it was varied, in a way that lent itself to a lot of transferable skills that have really helped me as an author.
0: This, I'm going to get, I wanna get back to your story, but you have in your work now and what you're describing to me, you cover so many different bases and you have such a wide range of, of things that you do. Um, how do you keep it all straight? I'm just or, or just where's the energy come from? Where where how are you getting out of bed uh already at a 10?
1: Well, the energy does ebb and flow, you know. We we're, we're we're all humans and uh, certainly working for yourself and with contracts with other folks does take a lot out of you, but I am blessed with a love of what I do and a genuine belief in The audience, I I feel that working on story for young readers is perhaps the most optimistic thing that I could have done with my particular skill set. And I'm just profoundly invested in the community. Uh, As a child, you know, children's books were my sanctuary, my source of empowerment in my imagination and being able to give that back. Is really helpful. Uh, I think when I first started, you know, a lot of my law school classmates today um, were shocked that I decided to not practice or go into academia and instead wanted to write books for young readers. My classmates even had a little bit of an intervention for me in Chicago where they explained that I was having some sort of bizarre quarter life crisis and I would be filled with regret and poverty. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the first one never the second one, you know, we, we all have our worried nights, but I have muddled through nevertheless. And so, you know, I've just gotten so much out of it that I'm happy to um, reinvest that kind of pay it forward whenever I can.
0: Yeah. So tell me about your transition from a a law student to how you started publishing. I'd just love to hear what was involved in that uh, as far as overcoming whatever it is you, you had to overcome to get there.
1: Sure. Well, as I mentioned, the original plan was that I would probably go into academia after graduating from law school, or at least not long afterward. I had taken a clerkship, which is often what very new law school graduates do at the Department of Health and Human Services in Chicago, and I sort of thought, oh, I worked there for maybe a few years. I was also doing some um, stringing work. I think both the Sometimes and the trib at that point were on a hiring freeze, but I kind of gotten a toe in doing some uh, freelance stories, and I was hopeful that there would be some momentum there. And then I would turn and go into academia. I didn't want to go into the classroom without having a little bit more real world experience to take with me. And when I was clerking at HHS, I happened to be in the office. Um, this is actually it's a very tragic story, but it was, for me personally, um, a call to action. Uh, It was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And we had gotten a, you know, working in a federal office ourselves, an email saying that there had been copycat threats at buildings across the country, as you can probably imagine. And we were given the option, I'll never forget this, to um, leave the building immediately If we chose to do so, however, I guess since we were federal employees, they felt it was important to tell us that the time would be deducted from our annual leave. (laughs) It it was it was a little jaw dropping. And also we were you know, you're not necessarily processing the whole thing in the moment. Um, And my first thought was really okay, but I don't have any annual leave yet. I'm a new hire clerk. Right. So. What does that mean? And my second thought was, what just happened in Oklahoma City? And I have strong ties to Oklahoma. My uh, indigenous nation is based within Oklahoma's borders. A lot of my family lives there. I had cousins who were among first responders that day at the Murrah Federal Building. Um, one of my great uncles was actually on his way to do some business with his elder paperwork. I don't know exactly what it was. Never sick a day in his life, raised in you know one of these Indian boarding schools during the Depression, and in that one moment, he had this kind of blinding headache and turned off and went to an emergency room instead of going to the building. Which, you know, a million random things can happen that change your fate, but it really sort of brought home for me, I think, the idea of the time we have and the choices we make uh, that might not otherwise have fully sunk into a you know new graduate 20s something with stars in her eyes but for that sort of experience and I was very upset at what had happened I was I was extremely devastated that the daycare center had been hit and I took uh, a long walk home after work one day and I ended up at Lake Michigan and I sank down on a dock and I had this long conversation with some ducks because, you know, ducks are great listeners. And I, I don't know, maybe I read Make Way for Ducklings one too many times. And I was saying, you know, ducks, I want to do something really good for the world. I want to do something positive and I want to do something specifically for kids. And I'd always been a reader. I'd always been a children's book reader. In fact, in law school, I think it was my second year of law school, maybe I was just overcome with how bad writing is in case law. I never said that judges, I'm sorry. Uh, I was so overcome with that that I even went and grabbed graphic format books and children's books to give my brain some clarity and poetry, lyricism and language that I was really craving at that point. And it was just very clear to me that that was the path that I should try to take. I really didn't have much else um, beyond that. I hadn't looked into how does that actually happen? You know, um, I'm going to leave law where my classmates will go on to make hundreds of thousands of dollars and with student loans and (laughs) and somehow figure out how to become a published writer as my principal uh, profession, my principal occupation in life. Um, So. I sort of transitioned by doing some freelance writing work, which was great. I relocated from Chicago to Austin, which back then had a lower cost of living. This is no longer true. 20 years later, side note. Um, But, you know, one of the first things I did was walk to the nearest bookstore. I remember finding the shelf that said writing, sitting down in front of it and starting to pull craft books and resource books off. There was probably a children's writer market guide. I remember finding SCBWI and buying the book that had the information about what it was and immediately pursuing that um, in a kind of almost sink or swim way. It was, it wasn't a hobby. It wasn't something I dabbled in. I went in full blown with a conviction that I had very few skills, again, read, write, and talk. I had tons of learning to do, but this was the most important thing someone could do with their life. And there were also people who would help you to achieve it. And that was really uh, a fundamental um, reassurance I needed to make it all happen at that time.
0: So the first thing that was striking to me is you you mentioned like being in law school and, and, being just bored to tears by that kind of case writing, what I was thinking about was kind of the difference in sort of legal writing, which is a lot of it is sort of structured to make it incomprehensible for all but anyone who's gone to law school, versus children's writing, which is structured to be immediate, urgent, and concrete. And at... In, uh, instantly sink in to a, a small child I, I'd love to get back to that uh, when, we, when we start discussing craft but so a lot of people have that sitting on the dock moment right where they're like I'm going to do this and the follow through doesn't always come like we have our revelations but we don't always have, and you described being all in from that moment did you have the sense like this is something that's achievable for me
1: I had the sense that I was quitting my day job with student loans and <laughs> that and, you know, that may sound um, superficial or crass, but the fact of the matter is that it—it it is highly motivating. Uh, lack of choice will get you there. But I also I think after going through law school, much as I loved it um, for the conversations and the community, uh, having the ability to really sink in to children's books was so exciting and and personally fulfilling that I was someone who very much sort of made their own curriculum and immediately very seriously took to using books as mentor texts. Um, I went back to some of those childhood favorites, you know, like uh, Bridge to Terabithia and Witch of Blackbird Pond. And I thought about what made them work for me and what they could teach me about being a better writer and storyteller. It was also at the tail end of what was at the time called the multiculturalism movement. Uh, There was a period in the 90s into the very early 00s it was starting to die out and this was maybe uh 97 or so 95 97 95 and so there were still those books on the shelves and i was seeing um just a handful and i mean literally two or three uh contemporary native books joe bruschak had published a couple heart of a chief and eagle song Um, There there was a picture book that had an intersectional relationship between Seminole people and uh, escaped enslaved Black folks who are coming together in celebration of their uh, alliance and ties over generations. And I thought, you know, there might be a place for voices like mine that had an interest in telling stories that came from heritage, family and community as well as stories that were um, more mainstream and uh, broader in focus.
0: Right, right. And what was some of the things you learned? If there's anything that you took away from the kind of mentor text as you were sort of giving yourself this uh, third degree uh, that you were undertaking, if there's anything that you can point to now that stands out?
1: I'll, I'll use Bridge to Terabithia as an example. It, it's funny because I now teach writing for young readers at the Vermont College MFA program where I am the Katherine Patterson chair. And Katherine was one of the first authors who taught me as a child and also as a grown-up writer trying to learn how to write. And in, in the case of that book, I was really struck by the three-dimensionality of the character's how deeply invested I was in the friendship that is at the heart of the story. I I took particular note of the hope at the end, you know, bridge is a grief healing journey and it does touch on some emotionally um, profoundly challenging moments for our young hero. But at the end, there is that sense of, the future, that sense of healing, um, validation. And so while I wanted to prioritize character and story, I also felt a heightened responsibility to the heart and mind of the child and their needs as um, meeting that moment in the narrative.
0: Oh, that's that's a beautiful way of putting it. And so Tell me about was Jingle Dancer like the your was that that, that was yes. your first published book? I'm I sometimes there's sometimes there's a, a sneaky one in there that gets before <laughs> the ones we know about. Tell me about the the genesis of that and how that was that that was the one that broke through for you or if anything set it apart from the other things that you were working the kind of preparation manuscripts that you were doing.
1: certainly i first i loved my apprenticeship it was a fantastic time for me i was blessed with the opportunity to take classes with um, newberry honor national book award finalist author kathy oppelt here in texas i joined my uh, svwi chapter here in austin and was in a critique group and made friends who, who are still among my very best dearest friends today and I I was loving it. Uh, For Jingle Dancers specifically, you know, I mentioned the financial reality that I was dealing with being an author who, you know, was not, say, fueled by a trust fund, although I had a supportive spouse at that time. It still was a little touch and go. We were very young, and um, I was doing some work as a tutor at St. Edwards University. I was working and in language arts and English composition with freshmen who were from families of migrant farmers and all of these kids I mean they were 18 19 but you know very young very young college students uh, were English second language they had been to multiple um, middle schools and high schools and they were all a students and they the students themselves were inspiring to me. I was working with them on their stories and their narratives and the passion that they were putting into them and overcoming their own challenges as a writer. And so I was on a break between two of the student meetings and I was waiting for the next one to come in and I was reflecting back on my reading. You know, as I said, my reading was one of my most effective early teachers And I was taking a particular look at indigenous representation in children's books. Back then, it was extremely thin. It was almost all retellings of traditional stories, some of which were not particularly well researched or executed. A lot of historicals, many of which drew on kind of, oh, what you might call Hollywood Indian stereotypes. Um, But there was an emergence of newer quality work um, that was well-researched and by Indigenous voices. And even within that group, which included a lot of really terrific books, uh, people talk today about the rise in voices, but there have always been good voices out there. Um, you know, think about someone like Shanta Begay was doing gorgeous illustrated books back in the 90s. And the one thing I noticed was that they were almost exclusively about boys and men. And I thought... Um, You know, that coupled with the historicals, if I could write something that was about um, a young girl contemporary character and even the traditions that were passed down between girls and women in a contemporary setting, that that might be making a real contribution that would also kind of move the dialogue forward. Uh, We have a tendency in publishing and frankly in every industry to cycle a bit on what we've seen before or what has worked. But the more interesting question to me is always, where do we need to go next? And I was very much a child of my um, elders. um, You know, my grandmas, my great aunties, and my grandpas too, don't get me wrong. Um, But I thought that that, the love that was in those relationships was something that would be beautiful to reflect on the page. And a book about... Uh, preparation for powwow would translate some of that imagery we see in the popular culture. You know, there's, uh, if there's one positive story, it's about powwow and we see the dancer in full of regalia without thinking, who is that person as a human being? How did they get there? That is really gorgeous, um, you know, regalia they're wearing. How did that even come to be? And so I combined that with a concept story around the number of four, which is a very important number uh, to Muskogee, to a lot of indigenous people, in contrast to the Rule of Three, which so drives Western literature. You know, you have the Three Billy Goats, the Three Wishes, the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, right, all of that is coming from particular traditions. So if I could take these other considerations from a different worldview and also what wasn't being said in the body of literature, what my voice could bring that was um, different and needed, then that might be a way in which I could give children something that they didn't previously have. So I scribbled out a few thoughts on an envelope um, back of a torn envelope between students and I think I, I counted yes yes about 15 minutes um I scribbled out a very rough draft and I counted I remembered at the time this was something I did I was a very organized apprentice writer I went through something like 84 drafts And I was on a listserv that was called Children's Writer, I think. And somebody had gone to an SUWI conference in California and they posted to the listserv that an editor there had mentioned an interest in contemporary Native American stories, picture books specifically. And I thought. There's one, there's one editor who might be interested in this. And I was so excited. And so I, I sent it to her. And then I brought the manuscript to um, a couple of conferences. You know, at, I think back then you could submit to more places without an agent. And also, um, I took advantage of uh, the critique opportunities at the SVWI conferences since I was in Texas. College Station, San Antonio, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and Houston uh, were all drivable to me from Austin. So me and my little friends, we would all get in the car, we would share a hotel room, and we would just drive from one to the other to the other to the other. (laughs) (laughs) we <laughs> had so much fun and you know i had this great method back then i would give critiques people give me information i would take notes i would send out manuscripts people would say no if they said something nice and a little scribbled note i would get very excited and i wrote it all down and i had all these charts and then i had this one manuscript and i sent it to rosemary brosnan who back then was at lodestar and i brought it to um I submitted a for critique at a college station, and I think it was at Dallas. And all three of the editors were very excited and interested, and I had no idea what to do with that. Uh, I knew exactly what to do if people said no or offered improvement, right? I had my system. But when they said yes, I was just flabbergasted. And I was terrified of doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or burning a bridge. Um, and that's how I ended up with my literary agent. <laughs> she, she, she can do that. I can't do that.
0: Yeah, it's sort of an odd thing when the success you've been chasing starts to come for you. What yes. do, what do you I, do with it, right?
1: I, I didn't know. It wasn't part of my color-coded system.
0: <laughs> there's, that law, there's that law and journalism degree. Talking... And so was anything different than what you anticipated when you start when you started publishing was there anything that threw you for a huge loop that an adjustment you had to make
1: It was very strange to me that people I didn't know would be reading the book I realized that this was arguably the goal all along However up until that point if someone had read it I had given it to them I had chosen that person carefully and now all of a sudden randomly, anyone could do that. And I'll I'll never forget at the time being in the bookstore with a dear friend and expressing this concern, you know, there's my book, anyone could just grab it. And I I hadn't given them permission. And the response was, Cynthia, when they gave you the check, and you accepted it, that was permission. (laughs) So I, I, I had to just get comfortable about feeling exposed, you know, having um, those little pieces of my soul recorded on paper and sent out into the world, and and that it, it sounds silly, and it, it sounds like yes, this was a very obvious result of all of this effort, and yet when it actually happened, it came as a surprise to me.
0: No, it does change everything. You know, it, it it's uh, it's you'd totally recalibrate because it's no longer just this thing that you're doing for yourself and a couple people, and. Be- Picking up on that, like, so you pretty quickly started publishing uh, longer form stuff, uh, like Rain is Not My My Indian Name, and Indian Shoes, and like into middle grade work, Um, and I was just just finishing Indian Shoes just right now, not right now, but before we talk, in the preparation for this interview. Anyways, um, tell... And this is something I want to get into because I'd love to talk about your kind of horror-gothic uh, YA stuff. And is that you're able to write from a huge variety of points of view. And and um, I'm just curious about how you, when you're starting a project, how you start to situate where you're going to tell the story from, where the narrator exists from. Um, because... I would just be interested to hear uh, your process for how you approach where where the story is going to come from.
1: I, I've been known to joke that I either have great range or a complete lack of focus. So much of it is not about me. I don't really prescribe um, going in what age market the particular story is going to be. I think about uh, who the character, who the main character or characters are and what their challenges are, what their journey is going to be. And that in turn tells me where they're going to fit along. If, if young Jenna is trying to assemble her regalia with the help of women of each generation of her family and community to dance girls at powwow, she's probably seven years old. If um, you know Quincy is trying to relaunch her inherited family restaurant by reinventing it with an Italian vampire theme, um, and is potentially uh, tantalized by the um, charms of a certain certain budding young chef, that is probably going to be not just a YA novel, but a 14 and up YA novel, as opposed to, say, a 12 and up YA novel. I just finished, uh, what do you call them? Not Line edits, that's what they're called. No, it's only like my 22nd book. I don't know anything. Uh, I just finished line edits on a book that we're currently calling Harvest House, which is a companion book to Hearts Unbroken. And Hearts is uh, going to be a 14, is a 14 and up book. But Harvest House, which is centered on Huey, he's the little brother of the protagonist from the previous book. He's more like 15 years old. He is, you know, in the first blush of independence. He can't even drive yet, but his some of his best friends can because he's right on that sophomore edge of getting a license. He's just dealing with romance and crushes for the first time. That's a very different place than where his big sister is and the challenges that she's facing. So it really is the story that picks its form, age, market, and format rather than me picking for it.
0: We've been talking with Cynthia Lydic-Smith. There's plenty more coming up after the break, but if you're just getting into Cynthia, Head over to her site, cynthialydexsmith.com, and find just the book in the age range you're looking for. I'm particularly attached to her middle-grade collection of linked stories, Indian Shoes, and her wonderful reimagining of the Peter Pan story, Sisters of the Never Sea, and the astounding collection she edited for Hartrum, Ancestor Approved: Intertribal Stories for Kids. And if you like the internet, be sure to follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Okay, let's get back into it. Part two begins now. Tell me a bit about, uh, more about um, what you were seeing at the time when you started publishing for uh, Native American Voices and, and what you thought it was. I know you, you mentioned that there was a lot of men's men stories or boys' stories, but not a lot about uh, women. But just tell me a little bit about what your thoughts were at the time and, and now um, about the amount the, the amount and or quality of the books uh, featuring uh, Native American voices and what you were hoping to add to that.
1: Sure. You know, when I was starting, we were, as I mentioned, at the tail end of what at that time was a trend called the multiculturalism movement. And the books that were being published then were largely retellings of ret- of traditional stories and historicals of varying varying quality. Um, min- many, if not most of them, I'm sure most of them, were told by non indigenous uh, storytellers. Then the entire market essentially went bust. There was a retraction, and it wasn't really just in terms of representation which back then the conversation was very centered on uh representation of native um black latinx and asian americans it's a much broader conversation now but back then that was really those were the only statistics that were being kept and the only um kind of focal topics that were being featured at teacher and librarian conferences. Interest was slim. Uh, I can tell you for many years, I spoke on diversity panels of authors with the same four or five authors and the same loyal 35 librarians, bless them. I will always be grateful to them for showing up and listening to us say basically the same things over and over and over again. And, you know, then we hit a point where... It was a real struggle of publishers um, due in part to economic reasons and also um, their perceptions of the audience and bias pulled back to maybe one author for Indigenous voices for children. Um, that was Joe Brushak and. Uh, I should point out that Joe himself did a lot of work to get more um, Native voices out there. He even owned Native Press at one time to publish to other people. And then YA uh, with Sherman Alexie, who was really an adult author who had done one book. And it was so thin. There was this idea that there wasn't a real need for more. And... Um, A lot of authors were getting cut out of the business altogether. When I look back at who was publishing in the late 90s, many of them didn't survive in part because of the market, in part because of limited opportunities to pivot. I decided at some point, I was was young back then for a published author. I was one of the first Gen Xers to publish. The vast majority of authors that I knew were at least... 15 to 20 years older than I was. Publishers weren't taking chances on new voices and they weren't taking chances on younger voices either. So I figured, well, I will write anything. Right. I had a, I had a wide array of interests. I'd always been a broad reader. I'm an enormously geeky human being. I would write some speculative fiction and see how that went. At first, it was hard because people had a very definite idea of the kind of writer I was and the kind of market that I would appeal to. And at that same time, that market was drying up. So I thought, well, if I can break through that, and I can see speculative fiction, I can address many of the same themes. I can address gender empowerment, I can address um, diversity, inclusion, equity, um, you know, all of these things that might naturally arise just from a heightened visibility of Indigenous literature. I could come at them at a slant through metaphor. In speculative fiction, kind of sidestep the grownups and get the same uh, sort of thematic conversation going on with the young reader. And uh, in, in the way that, say, people think of, you know, Star Trek is a science fiction show. Right. But it was awesome show that was very much about inclusion and representation and modeling so you can do a lot by not coming at it straight on and that is what I largely decided to do so the two main series I worked on and addition I also did some short stories and other things but um the two main series I worked on were not indigenous focused, but it, they did touch on a lot of the same themes, and they did feature diverse casts of heroes. And nobody seemed to notice uh, that the characters weren't all white, straight, cis folk, etc., cetera, if they could also turn into werecats or whatever it might be. And that was the way that I kind of snuck in. Um, I also maybe even wanted to prove to myself that I could play on any field and be competitive at it The um you know there are challenges in our industry there are biases in our industry um certainly as a young writer there were other writers who dismissively said oh well the only reason you're published is even though i think at that time uh, even today native lit is less than two percent of the total and back then was probably point eight percent and I remember thinking, yes, this is a grand advantage that is really paying off for all of us. Thank you very much. But there was this part of me that wanted to sort of say, hey, being an Indigenous writer doesn't mean I'm a lesser writer. I'm also, I'm actually from a rich storytelling tradition that values writers, that values narrative. Um, that centers it in the culture and community in a bigger way than um, the mainstream society that surrounds it. A children's author in Indian country is more valued in many ways than in the mainstream society where, you know, we're often like, why don't you write for grownups? You would never, you don't hear that in Indian country. You hear, oh, the children are, you know, are, are most um, valued children and elders is everything. So all of that was kind of swirling around in my mind um and i'm sure i have a point there what was i talking
0: about no that's wonderful that's beautiful that i love what you're saying about how that in uh, a lot of native american cultures that the children's author is or the children's storyteller is way more valued than for instance the lawyer maybe um and i love the idea of approaching uh, genre with you know not necessarily to say here's what I'm doing but coming at it with a consciousness and awareness of where the genre has been and then using it as a vehicle because you you're also writing just straight up fun genre books uh yeah like it, this is these are just fun fun page turners and very very aware of 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 kind of horror comedy a gothic dark vampire werewolf stuff um tell me about a about, about i don't know your interest in 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 that side of things because like you're saying everyone's interested in that kind of thing it doesn't matter really where you come from like
1: right i have this concern uh you know i i do think that it's extremely important to have books that are about Say the Trail of Tears. You know, I'm from one of those families about uh, the U.S. Indian boarding schools experience. My grandfather was raised in one of those schools. At the same time, I don't know that that's the story that Indigenous parents want to tell their kids before they tuck them into bed at night. You know, the the idea that the monsters can take you away from your parents. All of that is it has its time and place, but it shouldn't be everything. And people should never be defined by the worst things that were done to them by someone else. They should be defined by their own perspectives, ideals, dreams, heroism, community efforts. So there's that. And I also just I didn't want to depress the children, which you can do if the balance is off. Yes, we need those stories, but we also need other stories. Uh one of part of the work that I'm doing um you know through Heart Drum where I'm author curator, we're publishing books like JoJo McCoons, they used to be best friends, which is just a daily life comedy about a little girl doing her thing with her cat and her drama with her friends in second grade. So, you know, my work has always leaned into humor and I think, you know, sometimes we're so busy trying to check off subject matter, or curriculum boxes that we forget that none of what happens to a people matters unless their full, their three dimensional humanity shines through and that includes joy, it includes laughter, it includes mutual support, it includes big dreams um, that are filled with hope and aspiration. So when I was thinking about doing the gothics and I have this diverse cast of heroes and they're up against some big bads, you know, and it's, um, it's it's very fantastical. It's very escapism. It's hopefully fun but also does ask some bigger questions. I was very aware of my own inner teenager and what the books that I would want to read, the books that I would gravitate toward on the shelf. Um, I I think that there are a lot of ways to frame your writing. You can, and and none of them are wrong. You can frame with educators in mind first, um, with, you know, kind of the literary canon and award committees in mind first. I've always thought about kids first and that young reader and their emotional experience and how the book is going to impact them. When I was a kid, which Blackbird Pond, um, which was, you know, set in. Puritan New England about a girl who was on trial for witchcraft because she liked to teach others to read and was strong minded. I kept thinking if I lived in Puritan New England and was a white girl, um, I would probably be on trial for witchcraft too. But, you know, that modeling was reassuring. It said to me, there have always been girls like you and there always will be, and that it's good to be strong and to stand up for others and to be a member of a community. So all of that kind of swirls around. At the same time, I'm thinking it would be really fun to have a giant snake demon.
0: That's really fun. Tell me about your work um, with Heart Drum. What's your arrangement? You're not calling yourself like a publisher. I, I'm not actually sure. No, 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 no. You're a, you're the, a curator.
1: And do you want to say that is really the most important thing about you? that is what you're going to see over and over again as opposed to this is part of a larger narrative. And you know I remember thinking um as a kid who was a reader I actively avoided books that had any hint of native content on the cover because I knew that they either wouldn't ring true or that they would be upsetting in some way. I worried a lot that my friends would read the books and think that that's what it meant to be someone like me. And, and in some cases, it was just sort of ridiculously distancing. There was this trope where, you know, kid is, for whatever reason, lost in the, lost in the forest. And everything's going to be okay because they have found this, you know, Indian child in the woods who will be able to guide them. And, okay, maybe it is where that kid is from and maybe they can guide them. But one, where is that kid's family? What is he doing out there? Where is his mother? Where is his grandmother? Where is where's his father and brothers? And why aren't they with him? And uh, you know, also, I couldn't find anything. I mean, to this day, if I park my car in a big lot during the holiday shopping season, I will never find it again. It is a major issue for me. So the idea that you know, native people, you know, sometimes positive tropes were problematic too. We, I, I don't have this. I, supernatural compass system inside of my body. Um, and I don't think that that probably rings true to most contemporary native kids.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And um, I wanted to ask about, you know, in Hearts Unbroken, you specifically got into, we're almost, but this is something that's happening right now among many other terrible things, but there's, there we're we're, we're banning, banning more books again in libraries. Yeah, it's back. It's it's happening again and again. Um, this is self evidently terrible, right? But I want to give you I want to give you a chance to, to 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 tell us why why this is terrible.
1: It's terrible in a way that does have a kernel of hope to it, and so I want to offer that to this community in particular. Because I know it can be discouraging when you're doing the work and you see the need and you feel that these uh, so powerful forces are rising up against it. And it's that they're rising up against it, yes, for perceived short-term political profit, but they are also rising up against it because it works. If um, they're against empathy and the books provide that, they wouldn't bother if it wasn't making a positive difference, if it wasn't opening up kids to ask hard questions that they're not prepared to answer. And so I think that we can recognize that part of the reason we're in this difficult position and challenging confrontation is because we do have a lot of power. We do have a lot of responsibility to use it appropriately. And what appropriately means is going to differ depending on our value system. If children's literature is about empowering young readers, if it's about sending out the message that every kid can be a hero, that we all cheer, that is something that I'm willing to fight for on the page and off.
0: Beautiful. Thank you for that. I want to just briefly ask you about your latest book, Sisters of the Never Sea. You channeled the a, a very a very convincing Barry and coming from a lot of your uh like first person stuff and someone who as someone who has attempted to do that really top down third person voice, that is a that is a, a mighty feat. Tell me just tell me a little bit about I'm 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 curious about the craft of that, but Anything you'd like to say about Sisters of Neversee, which is a really, really cool um, hack of—I don't—not hack, but yeah—I'd just be curious to hear about that part of it and anything else you'd like to say about it.
1: Yes, Harper Children's is the publisher. So, and Harper is one of your big publishing houses They've been around for a long time. Rosemary Brosnan, who is one of the legendary children's book editors and was my original children's book editor, and we still work together today, is the in-house editor. And my role is defined as author curator. This is a new role in children's publishing. And it is mostly a pairing between a publisher in an imprint form with someone who has been involved in um, the body of literature for a very long time and has a particular perspective to bring and also has a bent toward books that is, um, I, I hesitate to use the word bigger, maybe broader than their own work. So, you know, I mean, I definitely put heart and blood into every story that I Managed to ink out myself, but I've also always been someone who has been a writing teacher, who's done a lot of mentoring. You know, I'm active in my local SVWI. I've taught at Highlights and Whipper and other conferences around the country. And I'm really invested in um, new voices and supporting those established writers who are maybe trying something new, are switching it up in terms of age markets, formats, and genres, who have had some time off or who are struggling to reboot after career ebb and flow. And if you've been around, you know, 20 plus years, we have all had them. Um, I, I want to be there for those people, too, because when I decided to leave Law and Write for Young Readers, it was out of a love of young readers, out of an investment of books and a history with books. It was a consideration of my skills, skills. but it was also about wanting to belong in this magical world and community. If you had told me when I was 10 years old that someday you're going to grow up and the people that create these books that you love so much will be um, your best friends, your colleagues, Um, the people that you're working with on a day-to-day basis, I would have been spinning over the moon. And it's such an extraordinary privilege. And I'm so incredibly grateful to it that being a good literary citizen is a priority and being involved in an initiative like Heart Drum, which in a very pragmatic uh, results oriented way gets more indigenous voices and visions out there, which advances the body of literature uh, is, for me, uh, one of the most rewarding things that I could possibly do and hopefully is uh, doing some good for readers and other book creators, too. Sisters of the Never Sea is, shall we call it a reenvisioning of the world of J.M. Barry's Peter and Pan, also titled Peter and Wendy, depending on how far back you go. And it centers, um, it's it's contemporary, and it centers Wendy Darling and Lily Roberts, who is my reinvention of the Tiger Lily character, as contemporary stepsisters from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who with their shared little brother, Michael, find themselves In Neverland, on the Never Seas, and very much um, attempting to stay together and find their way back home. So, I am someone who is really interested in the conversation of books and story over time. My channelized series was in conversation with Abraham Stoker's Dracula, it was, um, you know, very much addressing his themes of gender and power of the dark other, which back then meant Eastern European, very scary Eastern Europeans, uh, according to um, the era and his perspective. So this was that same kind of dialogue only with Barry instead of Stoker. And the themes that I was interested in were once again, um, gender empowerment also uh, that, Indigenous representation that was in the book, um, the ideas that were universal about home, uh, about what it meant, not only to the kids trying to get back, but also to those who were quote-unquote Indigenous to Neverland, to the fairy, to the merfolk, um, what the, what the ecological situation was for these wild beasts that Peter was hunting, and, and, as long as I was going to go into Barry's world, I figured I would meet him on his own literary ground with the Tamalai series. I employed uh, Stoker's quasi epistolary approach with venues and newspaper ads and all these kinds of devices. Like he used devices with Barry. It is a storyteller's old fashioned fairy tale voice. It is, um, Kind it it was it was very funny to do it with uh, hints of the modern language, and um, you know I've got a kid who is flying through the air. She has some issues with anxiety, and she's not only worried about falling into the ocean and being eaten by, say, sharks. She's also worried about some mid-air drone hitting her. Like, could that happen? Uh, So there, and those gave opportunities for a, a fresh. Take for for humor for um, a perspective that would ring true to young readers today, and make it a version of Neverland that any um, any kid could enjoy. And that you know, one of one of my favorite uh, responses from an adult reader was from a native teacher who said, "Finally, here's a Peter Pan story. My kids can I can feel good about." Sharing with them, and it's still going to have some of those classic literary techniques that we love. We love that feeling of once upon a time, we love that sense of this grand, sweeping adventure that we're going to be guided through by uh, a voice that will, that, that sees us, that knows we are there, that sometimes will address us, that may offer. Um, moments of warning are reassurances as we travel along our way and I just tapped right into all of that you know um, that kind of cumulative societal upbringing in um, the storytelling tradition which for me comes from more than one source and I was able to create kind of a hybrid form of it
0: I love the your approach this uh, what w- you mentioned di- dialogue these books are written in dialogue with older books and I think that's such a, a potent technique and a, a perfect way of putting it right because most classic books are problematic in some way and involve a conversation like if you're reading it to your kid you ha- there's a conversation you have to have of pretty much any book that was written just a little bit ago Um, And I love this idea of dialogue, of revisiting these classic themes again and again and again and conversing with, with the authors and this idea of that these stories that we pass down, that we're constantly kind of updating them and making them fit our world and for the world that, you know, the next generation of humans are growing into. Speaking, speaking of dialogue, I, this is my last question. If there is something that you could say to your, uh, you know, uh, sitting on the dock of the bay with the ducks uh, version of yourself as you're envisioning and shaping, if there's something you could say to yourself when you were just starting about what to avoid or what to dig into or anything like advice, because, you know, a, a lot of the people who are listening in are pre-published and... May have just had their own uh, sitting on the sitting by the water moment. Uh, is there anything that you could actually tell yourself that would be actionable or worthwhile?
1: Probably for me, the first one would be to be your own best cheerleader. The world tells writers no a lot. We need to tell ourselves and each other yes, whenever we can. And more personally, I I could you know portal back and talk to. Uh, that rather clueless but hopeful 20-something, I guess I would tell her, if you decide to do this, it will be uh, the bravest, strangest, and most heart-healing challenge of your life. And you may struggle, but you won't regret. And the main best way to quote-unquote succeed at it Is simply to not give up and remember that you are writing your own story. You are that hero, that protagonist, and your choices will dictate whatever comes next. You have more power than you realize.
0: That's all the time we have today on Conversations. On behalf of all of us at SCBWI, I'd like to thank Cynthia for making the time to talk with us. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our totally free show new episodes every week. And please head over to scbwi.org if you'd like to learn more about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. This episode was produced by Avery Silverberg and edited by Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening!